and we've got uh, a few weeks left in the series Against the Culture for the Culture, and uh, big subject again to talk about today on, on, the, uh, on, on an issue that's been very dominant in our society over the last few years. Before we uh, jump in, Greg, can I get you to pray for us? And we, Greg just said this a second ago, we want to be both humble in our demeanor, but also clear in what we're saying on an issue that's obviously very controversial in our culture today. And so, Greg, could you pray for us? Yeah. Our Father, we thank You that You are a sovereign God and we can trust You. Uh, Lord, You have brought us to this point where we can discuss uh, these uh, issues related to social justice. Um, Lord, what a volatile issue, but one we have to think through biblically, one we have to respond to biblically. And so, God, I pray that uh, through today and through study that we do on our own, that you would shape our hearts and minds by your word, uh, Lord, that what your word teaches is the filter, um, the framework that we operate out of and the, and the filter by which we um, evaluate ideas uh, and philosophies and ideologies and uh, everything out there, Lord, because your word is truth. Um, and it is the truest truth that we can have. Um, and I pray, Lord, that our hearts and minds would be subject to it. Uh, Lord, help us today to be faithful to your word. Um, Lord, help us be humble. Help us uh, be, be as gracious as we can. But Lord, as unapologetic and unashamed of the truth um, as we can be. Uh, so Lord, we just commit our hearts and minds to you. Lord, be our help. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today we want to talk about, and, and as soon as you say these words, everyone sort of has thoughts, but we're going to talk about Black Lives Matter. And the reason why we're going to talk about Black Lives Matter, in fact, I've got as my first slide here, why, why are we talking about this in Sunday school? Uh, you know, we, we could be walking through a chapter of the Bible right now, which we love to do, and we normally are doing things like that. Uh, why in the world would you spend uh, at least this week, possibly the next two weeks, uh, dealing with an issue like Black Lives Matter in a Sunday school context? It seems like that doesn't really fit right here and right now. And there's a whole lot that could be said about this. I think an opening comment for why we want to address this issue is because if we misunderstand some of the beliefs that are coming to us through the BLM movement, if we buy into some of the false ideas that are coming through that movement, I think it can strangely have an effect on us spiritually. And so although we're not going to be we're going to be dealing with Scripture, but we're not going to be walking through a chapter of the Bible today, the reason why we want to spend an extended period of time talking about BLM is because... I mean, I have seen this with people that I know and love, where when they buy into some of the premises of BLM, it leads them into, I think, spiritually not great places. And in extreme cases, it can actually lead people away from the Christian worldview. I know that may sound dramatic to some people, but I really do think that that is true. And so this is really an issue of trying to guard the flock, trying to protect all of us from, from some false beliefs that have crept into our culture uh, today. Greg, why do you think we're addressing something of this nature? Well, I mean, because it touches upon us. I mean, none of us can escape, um, you know, the last seven years, or was it nine years now, ten years, was 2013 when back Black Lives Matter was formed. Um, and we, we can't really account for reality. We can't live in this, in our country and in this world without that playing a part in terms of what's affecting the thinking of the people around us, um, what's infiltrating the church? What what are these ideas like? We the only way we escape this is if we go live in a monastery and isolate ourselves from society, which we can't do. Um, but this is there's like you said there's a mindset there's a, a way of viewing the world 
that is very prevalent right now. And if we aren't conversant with that and we don't know how to engage it, how to evaluate it, how to um, refute it, then we're, we're very susceptible to falling prey to it. Um, because we're in a society that very much plays on the, the, the emotions and encourages immediate reactions to things without any level-headedness, without any, um, you know, you don't want to say without emotion, but like let's follow the facts, let's investigate a situation. Um, and if we aren't able to step back and evaluate a situation and all that's going on in it and all that took place in it, then, I mean, we, we can't be faithful to Scripture if we're going to do that. It and can't be. What, what I've found to be the case is that <clears throat> often how the, uh, the, the critical theory ideology works is sometimes a very real case of injustice is, is presented. So something truly evil is shown to us on video or, or something we see a picture of or an account of, and it may be something that we all would abominate and absolutely detest mm -hmm. from a biblical perspective. And what will often happen is that story acts like an emotional hook that grabs you, and what usually happens in our culture today is if you truly want to rightly feel bad about this, then you have to adopt the whole theory and ideology, this belief system of critical race theory in order to rightly respond to this event. And so Christians who have good compassion for people who are, who are being victimized or in certain cases, actual oppression that's taking place, Christians who feel rightly bad about that will, can sometimes be manipulated into feeling that way and then moved into a system that they don't yes. realize all the premises are going to move them actually away from the categories of, of the New Testament. And, and today, uh, today uh, we're relying some on Vody Bauckham and his Fault Lines book and some things he's talked about. So some of the stuff I'm getting is direct, directly from him. Ali Best Stuckey is someone you may have heard of before. There's an episode that she did maybe two years ago that I've gone back to uh, several different times. What's her Black Lives uh, Most on YouTube, which I found helpful. I'm, I'm borrowing some material from her today as well. Here, here is just an idea to think about for a biblical perspective on justice, and this is kind of yep. jumping back to some things we ended on last Sunday. But just four, four things to hold on to. Uh, in Scripture, justice is truthful. It should be impartial, proportional to the crime committed, mm -hmm. and direct. So th those four things we're going to walk through in a little bit here, and we, we can start with Exodus 23, 1 through 3, and I'm going to put a slide of it up here if you don't have time to turn there, but we've got it right here on the screen. Listen to uh, these words regarding justice. In fact, Greg, can you read for us those yeah. first three verses? Exodus 23, 1 through 3. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Can you break down a few things that we see there regarding the issue of justice? Um, yeah, I mean, there's several things going on. I mean, keep in mind, can you pop back up the, the four things? Because yeah. I think it's, it's always relevant. Guys, one of the things we mentioned last week when we gave your definitions of justice, righteousness, and equity, we have to keep the true definitions in mind. They serve as a filter, as a grid, so that when we encounter false views and false um, understandings of these words, we have something to catch that so that it doesn't just come in and we accept it as is. So keep this truthful, impartial, proportional, direct, okay? And as, you, as we look through a lot of these scriptures, you're going to see that so much of the law that we have in our land is based on a biblical worldview. You know, God who made things um, a certain way, there is specific right, there's, there's specific wrong, there's, there's objective ways we are to act and respond 
Um, and so you're going to see a lot of, lot of relation between what we're reading and the stuff that we have up here and what's going on in our society. Um, so he says, you shall not spread a false report. It was in the Ten Commandments. He says, you shall not, um, shall not bear false witness. Um, so, I mean, this gets to the very heart of our duty towards other people. Um, it is sin to say something about someone that's not true to spread a false report. You're reporting that they said something or did something that they, in fact, did not do. That is sin in the eyes of God. It's not justice. That's injustice, okay? He says, you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. And again, what's going on here is it doesn't matter if you've got thousands of people saying, hey, they did this, they're guilty. You've got to investigate the situation. You've got to let the facts lead you to where they will. Um, because guess what? The majority can be wrong. The majority can be wrong. And I think that's one of the things God's getting at here in this is just because a lot of people say, well, you know, so-and-so and oh yeah, everybody's saying this. Well, that doesn't mean it's right. Okay, that doesn't mean it's right. And here's one of the biggest things for, for our consideration, and this plays into the BLM, the CRT. It says, you shall not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Poor people were typically the victims, um, if we want to use that word. They were easy to prey upon. They were easy to manipulate. They were easy to take advantage of because they were poor. They didn't have access to resources. They didn't have access to all the stuff that people of means have. And so, but what God says is just because they are more prone to be victims doesn't mean you show partiality to them. Because again, God is concerned with truth. God is concerned with truth. And so whether rich or poor, whether an oppressor or oppressed, whatever categories you use, you don't show partiality according to God. There is to be no partiality based on someone's social status, the color of their skin, um, you know, anything like that. We seek the facts of the case. That is what God is saying right here. This is what reflects his justice in his people. Yeah, go ahead. And just jumping in right there. So yeah. th this goes in any direction with any ethnicity, any mm -hmm. socioeconomic yeah. status. We don't, show, we don't show unjust favoritism in any direction. That, that's, no. that's the biblical principle. And Vody Bakum one time had this interesting quote. When I first heard it, I thought, you know, that, that's, a, that's a good point. He said, he said if, if you hear of a news report, uh, say it involves some kind of shooting or some kind of violent interaction between whether it's police and, uh, and like a civilian or, or whether it's between just two people. He said, if you don't know what you're supposed to think about the interaction until you know the ethnicity of the individuals involved, then you're not thinking with mm -hmm. biblical justice in mind. In other words, if you have to know the ethnicity of everyone involved before you can know what to do with the facts of the case, that's a problem. We need to know the facts of the case. That's what's important, not the skin color of everybody involved. And I think that, that's right. an, that, that could show, uh, interestingly, partiality in any direction. We, yes. we don't want the skin color to control our conclusion one way or the other. No, I heard, um, was it, it was either Daryl Harrison or Virgil Walker was saying, like, related to that, if the one thing you look at is, you know, what was the skin color of the, of the victim in this supposedly is like, if their skin color is darker than yours and that's what you're looking for, then your heart is already darker than their skin color. Meaning if that's all you're looking at is the color of someone's skin, then you are in a very, very bad place spiritually because you're already setting yourself up to not evaluate a situation based on the merits and the facts of the situation. You've already 
biased yourself towards a certain conclusion before you have any evidence to lead you there. And let me jump ahead here. So uh, James 2, um, uh, you know, I, I skipped, we just did this one, right? Yeah. Okay, so right here, James 2, which we read last week, I believe, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are, committed, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. So again, partiality would be a more biblical way of framing things, whether it's mm-hmm. ethnic or, uh, or of another kind. If you look at Leviticus 19, uh, verse 15 here, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Again, there it is so clearly. You don't show favoritism to either poor or rich. And there can be different reasons at different times to do both of those things. So in a certain culture, you might want to show partiality to the rich because they may help you out. And there might be bribery, which is talked about and Mm -hmm. condemned in Scripture. Or reversal, there might be a kind of ungodly compassion for the poor that allows you to actually bend justice on their behalf and actually wrong. Uh, in this case, it might be a rich person yeah. or something else. So the Bible says, no, no, d- don't, don't d- defer one or the other. You need to do what is actually just at the end of the day. Yeah. And Deuteronomy 1 here uh, has an interesting passage, verse 16. I charge your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And again, in today's culture, there can be a lot of pressure. I mean, you could say 60, 70 years ago, the pressure might have gone the other direction. The winds mm-hmm. might have gone in favor of one ethnicity, and now it might favor a different. But no matter what, the, no matter how the winds of culture are blowing, we don't lick our finger and put it up to figure out what we're supposed to do here. Like, where's popular mm-hmm. opinion? Now let's make our decision. No, we, we must do what is just and not be intimidated by anyone. Again, 70 years ago, you might have been intimidated by the Klansmen. Today, mm-hmm. you might be intimidated by a BLM movement that at times may move into true injustice. But either yeah. way, it doesn't matter when we live, we've got to be doing what is biblically right and just, not what is culturally popular at the moment that we happen to be uh, doing something. Look at this next text here, Leviticus 24. This is for the idea of it being proportional. The punishment fits the crime. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. And you shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. And again here, when Jesus speaks of, we we talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount a few months ago, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye, but I say to you, if your neighbor wrongs you, be kind. You may or may not remember it was a while ago, but I mentioned in my sermon, Jesus is not invalidating this, this verse in Leviticus. What Jesus is saying is, the Pharisees had taken a judicial law and applied it to personal vengeance. You get that? So the idea is, if someone steals, then they should be treated accordingly. They need to get an equal, uh, their punishment should fit their crime. But if I'm the one that was stolen from, I'm not the one to enforce the penalty. That would be personal vigilante justice, which is not justice. So this is the, this is the role of the government, not the role of the individual. And Jesus was saying, don't apply the government standard to your individual vengeance. That's what Jesus is getting at in that text. Well, also what this does is it guards um, not just vigilante, but over-punishing someone for a crime. Yes. I mean, like, we, we, we rightly still have some semblance of this here in our country. It's like, you know, someone who, who shoplifts a, a pack of gum does not get treated 
and, and, and dealt with the same way as someone who premedit, you know, plans and carries out the murder of another individual. Um, the punishment should be proportional. Should, like you said, it should fit the crime. And that's what this is getting at. Like you don't, um, you know, just because they, they did this, was it late um, Lamech in um, Genesis? It's like, I, he boasts to his wives, I, I killed a man and a young for man striking for striking me. me. He struck me, I killed him. Look, you know, it's the whole... Um, I mean, we see this, like, if you're on social media, like the, the Twitterverse, Instagram, whatever, like, you know, we, we, we get a thrill out of takedowns. You know, one person said this, and we destroy them. It's like, we, we don't get this anymore, which is really sad, but it's like, no, wh- whatever the response is needs to fit the wrong and not go beyond the, beyond the wrong. To go beyond the wrong is actually to do wrong yourself. That's right. But we're so tempted in personal vengeance to over-avenge, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if, if it's up to me, I want to over-punish the person. And when it's like the idea of it being uh, direct here, let me read one more verse from Deuteronomy 19. It's not on the screen. A single witness shall not suffice against a person. This is Deuteronomy 19.15. Single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now listen to this. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, so that's to be taken seriously if there's a malicious witness. It says, both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. Right? So there's, there's an accusation. It's not automatically believed, and it's not automatically discounted. It is what? Inquired diligently upon. The, the evidence is presented. The facts are examined. Quote, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to, be, to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And on it goes. So you see here again that the, the crime is proportional and it's also direct. It should be given to the particular person who is guilty of that punishment. So Can I, can I say yeah. something on that? Like this is the whole, whole basis for due process. I right. mean, like, like we've said multiple times, like actually, you know, if something happens, l- wait, let the facts play out, find out what actually happened. You know, and you think about it when you have criminal investigators who, you know, go at a situation like you need to give them time to talk to people, to examine the scene, to, to figure, and they're, you know, if you're in law enforcement, there's a whole lot more that goes in it, into it than what I'm saying right now, but you've got to give it time, that inquiring, like what he's saying here, to figure out what actually happened. The worst thing we can do is decide before we know everything. Um, that, that's exactly what this is guarding against. And so you might say, well, you know, we, we don't have judges. So, you know, that doesn't No, like the inquiring diligently is what we do. There, it's the other witnesses is the evidence. A lot of times um, there it's witnessing to the case. It's witnessing to an event. And we need to give that that the evidentiary witness the opportunity to speak before we make our conclusion. And I, I think this is the thing where. Um, where we have gone so wrong in the culture today is we don't want to hear the evidence. We don't want to hear it. We don't, we don't care anymore. It's, you know, I've already decided someone's guilty before we find anything out. Um, and if the evidence points differently, well, then to say the evidence is biased. Like there, there, there's no submission to absolute truth, no submission to objective fact. Again, no system's perfect. But it's like our system's the best you're going to find anywhere in the world, and we should be thankful for due process. We should be thankful for what we have um, because it does guard against misuse.
And again, th- th- what we're saying here, like you, like you just said, this doesn't mean that we can't improve things. Th- th- right. w- yeah. w- improvement would be made in, in accordance with biblical justice. So if there's something that, that truly is wrong, that needs to be fixed. Yeah. No, no argument there at all. The question is, are we assuming a lot is wrong that's not actually wrong going into mm-hmm. the, whole, the whole situation? So uh, uh, jumping into the organization first of Black Lives Matter, uh, I, I realize the organization itself has been discredited on almost both sides of the aisle today. But uh, if, if you can look here, uh, they raised over $90 million in 2020. Uh, there, there was a lot of controversy about how the money was used. One of the co-founders, apparently it was like millions of dollars were spent on a home and these different things. You can look into that. I'm not even gonna talk about that any more than just to say that there's, there's, there's skepticism about how those $90 million were used. And you can look into that. There, there's, there's some stuff about her uh, giving almost a million dollars to, her, to, her, uh, to the father of her children and things like that that are suspicious. But even, even if that happened, happened. This was originally on the BLM website, and I'm sure many of you heard about this. They changed it later because they got in so much trouble, but this was on their website in early 2020, around the time of the George Floyd situation. Uh, This is straight off Black Lives Matter website. So let me just read some of this. If you haven't heard it before, it's worth hearing. Quote, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. So mom and dad raising children in a home, we want to dismantle that. The requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. You notice the word father is deliberately, I think, left out. Mothers, parents, and children. There is no reference to fatherhood. There's a big problem here with the organization and its view of fatherhood, it seems to me. We foster a queer-affirming network, so it's no surprise it's LGBT and also pro-choice. None of that should probably surprise us. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. The idea that heterosexuality is God's intended way to do things, that's heteronormative thinking. We want to free ourselves from that, or rather the belief that in all the world, the heterosexual, uh, the, the all, that in all the world are heterosexual unless she, he, or they uh, disclose otherwise. Now, Thabiti Anyawile, who, again, we keep mentioning him because he's a guy I used to really like. He spoke it together for the gospel. He was trained by Mark Dever. He was an elder at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He, he was a guy, I, I have multiple of his books. I've listened to him speak. I've heard him in person in a, in a large gathering uh, preach. I, I was a Thabiti fan 10 years ago. I would have recommended him to you 10 years ago. Today, I do not recommend him to anyone because his slide is evident on these issues. He, he has, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's an exact sad example of exactly the thing we're warning about. A guy who was rock solid doctrinally, at least he seemed to me. I know we, we saw there were some cracks earlier on that mm-hmm. I didn't see 10 years ago. But there were some cracks earlier on. But he was a rock solid guy, generally speaking, 10, 12 years ago. He started speaking at T4G in 08, and, and he, was, he seemed solid. And then in the last few years, I disagree with him on all kinds of things that he tweets and talks about these days. So here, here's a quote uh, from his uh, Twitter account. Y'all do know that the organization Black Lives Matter is a red herring used by a lot of people who can't bring themselves to unequivocally affirm the statement, Black Lives Matter, folks full of critiques of the organization when your average Christian isn't even a part of it or interested uh, in it. LeBron James, I can't show the whole tweet because there's some bad language, but LeBron James famously tweeted uh, in 2020 referring to black men. He says, we, we're literally hunted every day, every time we step foot outside the comfort of our homes I can't even go on a jog, he says, without being killed. He's referring to Ahmad Arbery, which was a horrific uh, and, and terrible incident. Uh, the, the former president of the SBC, J.D. Greer, again, a guy I've heard speak in person. I, I was a huge J.D. Greer fan about 10 years ago. This is another guy that I, I'm increasingly not as comfortable with where he's going on a number of things, but he tweeted in June of 2020. Uh, I'm going to show part of this uh, video, actually. Let me pull this up. 
so he, I can minimize this. Here's what uh, J.D. said on, uh, on a video in 2020. And I'm, I want to play the whole two minutes here because I don't want to take him out of context. He actually said this clip is a better view of what he was really trying to say. Baptist, we need to, to say it clearly as a gospel issue. Black lives matter. Of course black lives matter. Our, our black brothers and sisters are made in the image of God. Black lives matter because Jesus died for them. Black lives are a beautiful part of God's creation, and they make up an essential and beautiful part of His body. And we would be poorer as a people without um, them and, and other minorities in our midst. Let me echo my, my, my friend Jimmy Scroggins, um, pastor down in, in Florida, in saying that Black Lives Matter is an important thing to say right now because we are seeing in our country the evidence of specific injustices that many of our black brothers and sisters and friends have been telling us about for years. And, and, and by the way, let's not respond by, by saying, oh, well, all lives matter. Uh, of course all lives matter. But I've heard it described this way. Say you're in a group or with a group at a restaurant, and, and the waiter brings the food to, to everybody except for one guy at your table, your friend Bob. And so you say to the waiter, hey, excuse me, Bob deserves food. And somebody at your table corrects you to say, no, 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 all of us deserve food. Well, that's true, but you're missing the point. Bob is sitting there by himself without food. And so we are saying we understand that, 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 uh, that, that many of our black brothers and sisters have perceived for many years um, that the processes, the due processes of justice have, have not worked for them as they have for some others in our country. And by the way, like Jimmy, uh, like Dr. Scroggin says, let's spare each other the quotation of stats right now. You know, if you talk to some black friends, you'll know that they can tell you about their experiences and how some of them can be quite different from, from others in our country. We want um, rights and privileges to be extended to everybody. Um, we Christians want to hear our brothers and sisters, to feel their pain, to enter into that pain and bear that burden with them. Black Lives Matter. And by the way, I realize that the movement and, and the website has been hijacked by some political operatives whose worldview and policy prescriptions will be deeply at odds with my own. But that doesn't mean that the sentiment behind it is untrue. I do not align myself with the Black Lives Matters organization. And I think saying, um, saying bald things like defund the police is, is unhelpful and deeply disrespectful to many public servants who bravely put themselves in harm's way every day to protect us. But I know that we need to take a deep look at our police systems and structures and ask what we're missing. Where are we missing the mark? And I'll say that we do that because black lives matter. Okay. Now, there, there are certain things that, of course, we're going to agree with about the clip. Let me just, let me just and this is <clears throat> getting into probably the, the more controversial aspect of what we're saying today. So, uh, first of all, I want to say uh, the statement, Black Lives Matter, is, of course, a true statement. Just like you can name anyone made in the image of God, and you can say that their life matters because they're made in God's image. No, no, dis no dispute or any debate there. But, and I, I appreciate the fact that he disagrees with the Black Lives Matter movement. That's an important thing that he highlights, and I, I think that's important to say. But he here's where we get into the controversial territory. The, the statement Black Lives Matter means more than just African Americans are made in God's image, which I hope we all obviously affirm, just like any group of individuals is made in God's image. The statement doesn't just mean that. The statement has not, never been used just to mean that black people are made in God's image. Uh, that's, of course, we can affirm that. The issue is, when we say that, what we are actually saying is that the system that we are living in right now, especially law enforcement and things like that, are systemically targeting black lives. 
and that black lives are at threat. Like LeBron James said, you can't walk down the street without being targeted, without being, without being attacked. And so the issue is, is it actually true that black lives are being taken by the police in a way that is clearly showing a deep and racial and systemic bias. And J.D. Greer, I think, would say, yes, th that is the case. And I, I want to say that, um, no, that, that is not the case. And uh, Greg, give me some thoughts here about what uh, J.D. was sharing. Um, well, at the end, he made the comment, you know, some people have hijacked the BLM website. It's like, and I think we're going to look at this a little more. When you actually look at the founders of BLM, you look at um, what they are about, nothing was hijacked. It is what it is from the beginning. It hasn't changed. Right. Um, there's no hijacking of a good thing that's been twisted for evil. It was twisted for evil from the very beginning. Um, and they were looking for a reason to exist. And they found one because it, it happened, um, I think we already mentioned this, but when George Zimmerman um, you know, was exonerated from you know, being accused of murder in the Trayvon Martin case, um, you know, that was the whole impetus that got them going um, is they didn't care about actual justice. It was they had an agenda. They, they wanted to care about certain types of black lives because it would foster their agenda. Um, and so he, he's wrong on that. It's the organization is fundamentally what it is. It hadn't been hijacked by anything. Um, it's got Marxist roots. It's got, um, I mean, Marx hated the, the family. If you've ever read in the communist manifesto, I mean, he talks about, he hates the family. He sees it as sign, the nuclear family as a sign of, of, of oppression, a sign of the, the, was it the bourgeoisie and of their oppression of the proletariat. And if you're going to overthrow the bourgeoisie, you've got to overthrow the family. Um, and so it, it's fundamentally Marxist. The, the founders, several of them said, were trained. Can I show this? It's yeah, right here. So this. Th this, this is, is one of the co-founders of BLM. And uh, listen to She actually uses these words that Greg is saying in this interview. I also think that it might... Um, I think of a lot of things. The first thing I think is that we actually do have an ideological frame. Um, myself and Alicia in particular are trained organizers. Um, we uh, are trained Marxists. Um, we are uh, super uh, versed um, on sort of ideological theories. So she admits that, she, that, that she and the co-founders have been trained in Marxism and have certain, are driven by certain ideological theories. So that's not, that's not we're not saying no. that, we're not putting the label on them. They are actually using the term Marxism to describe their framing of things. Well, and it's also important to remember when you think of Marxism, remember they, they don't see issues in individuals, they see issues in structures, in systems. That's, that's fundamental to how Marxism views the world. Um, and so it's no surprise then that you've got trained Marxists who are doing what? They're looking at what they say are fundamentally corrupt systems, law enforcement, this, that, and the other, and that's what they're going after. In their mindset, systems are oppressive, and you've got to attack systems. There's no, we talked about this before, there's no real individuals. You're all just an avatar of whatever system you belong to, um, and so that's why they talk the way they do. It is, and I'm, I'm glad they were honest about right. that. I think they've tried to hide that since. Right. Thankfully, with social media, this stuff does get captured, and you can't get rid of it. Um, but yeah, they're fundamentally Marxist. And if we remember, Marxism um, is, is incompatible with Christianity. Like you, you don't find common ground um, in terms of its worldview, in terms of its analysis of things. Um, it, it just, it creates categories and assumes injustices, assumes oppressions where they don't exist. Now, <clears throat> this is, uh, this came back to me. I want to make sure we say this. Um, 
The difference here, guys, and this is the thing we have to be very careful with, um, you can have a, a basically good system that can be abused by people in the system. Okay, I think when, when we see a lot of these cases, it's not an indictment of the system. It's, it's individual cases where people aren't doing and acting in accordance with the system of law and everything like that. Okay, it's, it's, it's not that the system itself is flawed. What they are assuming is the system is flawed, and that's why people are acting contrary to it. And so if anyone of a certain system does anything bad, the whole system must be called into question and doubted. When in reality, what we know biblically is you can have, um, like, say, the kingship in Israel. We, we don't say that the, the idea of having a king was fundamentally wrong because there were bad kings. You have kings who ignored God's law and led God's people into sin, but the kingship itself was ordained by God and was a good thing if done rightly. And so we have to be able to separate, and this is why individuality matters, um, and not just we're part of this collective whole in which our individuality is kind of assumed under that, is individual people do evil things. And individual people in good systems, in good um, society, can do wicked things that are contrary to. Think of slavery in the United States. It's actually incompatible with our founding principles as they're stated. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, whole declaration of independence, and you start looking at the Constitution and the writings of so many people, it's incompatible with who we are. So we don't question the whole American system. We can say, look, in this instance, we were horribly out of sync with who we said we should be. And same thing with stuff like this. Law enforcement is a good thing. I mean, I'm thankful J.D. Greer actually said that. And I, yeah, I'm going to get to some stuff on that very point in just a second. But so what we need to be able to do is ask the question, is this the system itself or is this someone going against what the system should be? And I think if we can ask that question, we can avoid getting sucked into the bad ways of thinking. So I'm going to jump ahead here. And if you look here at, uh, at a um, Washington Post uh, article here from, this is June 2020. It says here, the headline is, Police Killing Black People is a Pandemic too." So again, behind the, not just the organization, but I'm saying even behind the phrase Black Lives Matter is this kind of belief system. This kind of, and if you, if, you were on, if you were looking at the news in June of 2020, you saw a lot of articles like this. I had to go back on Google to find these things, but these were everywhere. Everybody was saying this, that police killing black people is a pandemic, that, that Black Lives Matter means the police are, indis, are, are discriminately targeting black mm -hmm. people in a, it, because they are black. That it's, it's racially, the system is rigged against uh, African Americans and minorities. Um, now, there's a Harvard economics professor named Roland Fryer. You may have heard of this guy. I don't know if you have or not. Uh, he's, uh, uh, he, he was convinced that this was all true, that there, was, that there was systemic injustice against minorities, especially black minorities. And so he did a massive study uh, as, a, again, a Harvard economics professor. He, he did a massive study where they examined over 1,000 police shootings, and he was convinced he would be able to prove racial bias in these police shootings. And this is from the article. Mr. Fryer, the youngest African-American to receive tenure at Harvard and the first to win a John Bates Clark medal, a prize given to the most promising American economist under 40, said anger after the deaths of Michael Brown, Freddie Gray, and others drove him to study the issue. Quote, you know, protesting is not my thing, he said, but data is my thing. So I decided that I was going to collect a bunch of data and try to understand what really is going on when it comes to racial differences in police use of force. He and student researchers spent about 3,000 hours assembling detailed data from police reports in Houston, Austin. You can see all the places. When it comes to the most lethal, use, uh, lethal form of force, police shootings, the study finds no racial bias. 
Roland Fryer says, quote, it is the most surprising result of my career. Um, the author of the study and professor of economics at Harvard said, the study examined more than 1,000 shootings in 10 major police departments in Texas, Florida, and California. The result contradicts the image of police shootings that many Americans hold after the killings, some captured on video, of Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Walter Scott, uh, Alton Sterling, and Philando Castile in Minnesota. In shootings in, these ten cities, uh, in shootings in these 10 cities involving officers, officers were more likely to fire their weapons without having first been attacked when the suspects were white, it's the opposite of what you might expect. Black and white civilians involved in police shootings were equally likely to have been carrying a weapon. Both results undercut the idea of racial bias in police use of lethal force. Now, let me keep going here. Mr. Fryer found that in such situations, officers in, Har in Houston were about 20% less likely to shoot if the suspects were black, which is, again, the opposite of what you might think. This estimate was not precise, and firmer conclusions would require more data, but in various models controlling for different factors and using different definitions of tense situations, Mr. Fryer found that blacks were either less likely to be shot or there was, there was no difference between blacks and whites. Now, let's, let's just... And if you want to quibble with his study, that's a, whole, that's a great conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have a conversation on whether his facts are correct. But let's just say here, does this sound like the narrative that we're hearing in our culture today? No, it does not. This is why I'm saying the, the phrase Black Lives Matter is, of course, true, but it is being used in a misleading way. You see what I'm saying here? And so uh, let's continue here for a moment. Uh, here's another report uh, from PNAS dealing with the same issue. Quote, we report three main findings in this massive study that they did. Number one, as the proportion of black and Hispanic officers in a, uh, it's a, fatal officer-involved shooting increases, a person shot is more likely to be black or Hispanic than white, a disparity explained by county demographics. Two, race-specific county-level violent crime strongly predicts the race of the civilian shot. And number three, although we find no, oh, listen, we find no overall evidence of anti-black or anti-Hispanic disparities in fatal shootings when focusing on different subtypes of shootings, for example, unarmed shootings or suicide by cop, data are too uncertain to draw conclusions. But you see here, we find no overall evidence of anti-black or anti-Hispanic disparities. Are you going to hear this on main cable television news? No, you're not. You're going to be, you're going to be taught such an opposite. You're, you're going to have the impression that it's probably a thousand to one unarmed African-Americans mm -hmm. being killed to unarmed white uh, Americans in some of these things. Quote, we did not find evidence for anti-black or anti-Hispanic disparity in police use of force across all shootings. And if anything, we found anti-white disparities when controlling for race-specific crime. I mean, th that is just not the narrative that we are hearing in our culture today. Um, I'll jump into another story in just a second, but just some thoughts when you hear, the, when the data is looked at, because even J.D. said, let's not quote statistics. Well, and I was just about to mention that. He said, well, just forget this. Well, you can't, you can't forget the statistics. Why? Because this kind of stuff affects how you interpret the situations. Um, if someone's saying the opposite of what the statistics are saying, you say, well, just listen to their stories, which we do need to listen to stories. We need to weep with those who weep. We need to, I, I do think it's right to enter into their, like, mm -hmm. gr grieve with people, weep with them. Um, and all that, but it's like we cannot accuse law enforcement of something um, because of feelings or emotion when it's just not the case. Um, it's just not the case. And I think like you cannot do away with statistics. As Christians, we are people of the truth. And anytime someone says, well, hey, anything that points you to truth, well, let's just forget about that for now. I'm sorry, you're not being Christian and you're arguing, arguing when you say that. I love J.D. Greer. I appreciate some of the stuff he said, but that is an unchristian way to argue. Well, just ignore the statistics. You can't do that. 
Like you're ignoring reality if you do that. And if you actually want to have a meaningful impact on this issue, you have to pay attention to reality. And when JD says, ignore this, let's not bring up statistics, let's hear the stories of minorities who have been targeted in some way. I'm not saying it's impossible. There may be minorities that you talk to who can tell you a story where they've been, they've, they've been yeah. targeted in some way, some sort of racial situation. You know, I, would, I would love to know more about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's uh, completely important to talk about. At the same time, there are stories on the other side that are being ignored. So let me just tell, maybe you've heard of this. Does anyone remember Tony Tempa? Have you heard his name? You remember this guy? Some of you may have heard of Tony Tempa. I heard about him a couple of years ago. So he suffered a very similar fate as George Floyd, but received basically none of the national attention that George Floyd did. Uh, let's just look at this here. So he called the police for himself because he was having a bit of a mental crisis. And if you read the story, I mean, he was doing some deranged activity. I think running out into the street and, and he was in front of a, uh, uh, an adult bookstore and he was acting in a very neuro- way. I think he had cocaine in his system. So there was a lot of sketchy stuff going on. Uh, but he called the police himself and asked for help. When, when the police came and there's, there's more to the story than the last four minutes of body cam footage, you know, if you, if, but I, I still don't think the police handled this in a way that seemed best. They, they get on this guy's back and he, it's very similar to the George Floyd thing. Uh, he says he can't breathe or uh, you're going to kill me, things like this. They didn't hold him down for the eight or nine minutes of George Floyd. This was like, I think, 14 minutes. And at the end of the time there, uh, he was limp and the police officer asked if they had killed him. One of the officers even makes a joke about, did we kill him? And it turns out he was, he was unresponsive. When the paramedics got there, they tried to revive him, and he was dead on arrival to the hospital. So this, this guy died. Now, there's no monument to Tony Tempa. There's no Tony Tempa day. There's no hashtag for Tony Tempa. There, there, there's not, you, most of us have never heard of Tony Tempa. And you know why we haven't heard of him? I guarantee you it's because he's white. Guarantee you it is because he's white. This is a, this is the difference between, remember, a, a local news story and a national news story is whether it fits the narrative of CRT. If he was black, I guarantee you, all of us would know this man's name. I Mm -hmm. promise you, you would have heard about him for months. There would have been riots and protests all across our country because police held him down for 14 minutes when he said, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. I've watched the video, by the way. I've seen the police body cam footage myself. I've watched it. It's pretty agonizing to watch, just like watching the George Floyd video is agonizing to watch. Now, we could debate on police procedure, and that's another conversation, which is an important conversation to have. I'm not an expert in those things, so I'm not gonna go there. I'm just telling you, if he was black, you would have heard of him. The fact that he was white means it's not something that's going to be run on the news for the next three months, and there aren't going to be uh, riots or or days named after him or or things built to him. This shows that the CRT narrative is what's controlling Mm -hmm. how we view society. It's not simply the facts and statistics that are going on here. What what do you think about those Um, things? Well, what I I want to do here is you mentioned if a local narrative becomes a national narrative, if it fits, or a local story becomes a national story if it fits the narrative. Um, the other thing you have to keep in mind, if you've already decided that like law enforcement, for instance, is, is evil and oppressive and has this, this anti-black agenda, um, then you're only going to look at the most extreme cases and it's going to be treated like that's what happens all the time. This right. is one of the facts that, that is so amazing. We got this from Ali Beth Stuckey. Um, and this totally changes uh, how you, you, you think about this. It says we have about, and this was in what, 2020, I think she said about 50 million police interactions with civilians each year. That's 20% of our country. So about one in five Americans interact with the police annually. There are usually about 1,000 people who are shot and killed by police each year. Based on these numbers, about 0.002 police interactions end up with a fatal shooting by an officer. And less than 0.0001% of all police interactions end with an unarmed citizen being shot and killed by police. And unarmed black men are shot and killed by police about 0.0001% 
Zero, 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 two percent of the time police interact with civilians. The way it's portrayed is this is happening everywhere all the time. And it is absolutely a lie. Every life that's lost is tragic. We don't want to ever treat any life as unimportant. But the narrative that we're getting takes something that is an insignificantly small number and makes it like that's what's happening everywhere. That is so wrong. I want to show you the statistics. I got a lot of slides. I got to skip here. Uh, We'll come back to them maybe next week. This blew me away when I first saw this. The Washington Post, no no real agenda here. They're just keeping the the, the facts on police shootings every year. They started in 2015, and I believe they have basically every uh, police-involved shooting where the person died, uh, they keep track of. And I I just did this yesterday. These are fresh statistics. You can punch in the year, the ethnicity, and whether they were unarmed or not. It's amazing. It's free. You can just go in there and do it. So I punched in unarmed white people who were killed in an officer-involved shooting in 2019. And you can see the number is right here. Where's my mouse? 26. Okay. And, and uh, some of those may be justified. Some of them may not be. I'm not going to go into that. But I'm just saying, just as a statement of fact, in 2019, there were 26 unarmed white people who were killed by police. All right. Now let's watch. How about unarmed black people the same year? 12. Is that what you would have expected from the BLM narrative? I don't even mean from the organization. I mean from the BLM motto. The BLM motto says you're going to find 1,000 number here, and you're going to find five or six for the unarmed white person. But unarmed black people who were killed in 2019 by police is less than unarmed white people. Would you ever think that based on the culture that we're living in? Now, let's do another year. This is 2020. Unarmed white people killed by police, 26. Unarmed African-Americans killed by police, 18. If if we do, we'll, we'll do here 2021. Unarmed white people killed by police, eight victims. So eight unarmed white people killed by police in 2021. Unarmed black people in 2021 is 11. And if you do the whole, uh, I mean, what else did I do here? If you do all the years, 2015 through this year up till current day, uh, unarmed white people, there are a total of 186 unarmed white people killed by police in all those years put together. And unarmed black people in 2015 to today is 148. So 186 white people killed since 2015 by police, 148 unarmed black people killed by police. Again, this is why the BLM motto itself is misleading. Not just the movement, the motto itself is inherently misleading because it would make you believe that the numbers would be vastly disproportionate on this very point. And and this is, again, this is coming from the Washington Post. This isn't coming from some white right wing. This is is just the the, the raw data. And this, this single piece of information, I think, by itself, does a lot to disprove a lot of what we're hearing today. This doesn't mean that nothing can be better. This doesn't mean that there can't be, we can't rethink certain police procedures. This doesn't mean that there aren't actually racist police officers, just like there's probably racist pastors and racist doctors and racist nurses. Like you, can, you can find anybody in any category who, who, has, who has major issues. But are we seeing clear systemic attack on unarmed African-Americans in our country? No, no that's not true. We're out of time. Yeah. We'll probably have to do another week on this yeah, particular we topic because we've got more week. to deal with here. But Greg, can you close us in prayer? Yeah, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Um, Lord, we thank you for truth um, that we can know, truth that we can see, truth that we can help, help us think through things. Lord, I pray as we listen to this that we'd never devalue the loss of any human life. Um, Lord, it is always tragic whenever a life is taken, and we should weep over that. And yet at the same time, God, may we not wrongly think about our law, our law enforcement. Um, Lord, as we think about how many interactions they have, to have such a small percentage in the way they do is an amazing, amazing thing. And it's a testimony to, in many ways, how well-trained they are and what a good job they do. Um, I pray, Lord, that we'd be a people driven by facts and evidence and truth. 
um, not devoid of emotion, but not led by emotion. Um, Lord, help us not to be Im- help us not to be partial. Help us to be impartial, Lord. And sometimes that seems to go against the grain. Um, but God, that's the standard you hold us to. And I pray, Lord, that we would not flinch from it. Um, so, Lord, just give us grace as we continue to think through these things. Um, Lord, what we've talked about today, and Lord, as we think about finishing this this particular element up next week, Lord, just be with us, help us, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.